we can move men from being stuck or a problem or apathetic or antagonistic to saying, hey, you have a stake in this as well, too, and really shifting them to be stakeholders, co-conspirators, co-beneficiaries, and then we're all anti-patriarchal together. I'm Jay Pichette, they, them. And I'm Erin Davis, and I use the pronouns she and her. Welcome to Uncovering Belonging, a podcast that explores the professional and personal stories of unique voices of what it means to belong and the journey to finding our authentic self. Jade, I'm so excited for you to meet Jake Sticka. Yeah, I'm so excited to meet you, Jake. I appreciate that. As NextGen Men's Executive Director, Jake is a passionate speaker and facilitator focused on gender-based issues related to the social and emotional development of young men, the health and well-being of men in communities, and gender equity in workplaces for a future where boys and men experience less pain and cause less harm. Jake was named one of Avenue Magazine's Top 40 Under 40, as well as having earned recognition from Ashoka, the British Council, and the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. He has spoken at the United Nations as part of the Canadian delegation and participated in the UN Women's Safe Cities Initiative Global Forum. He's also a proud advisor to the Calgary Immigrant Women's Association, Canadian Women in Sport, as well as the Calgary Women's Emergency Shelter. Jake uses the pronouns he and him. So happy to have you here today, Jake. So Jade is actually going to get us started with the first question. So Jade. Hi, everyone. This is Jade, and I'm recording this after the fact to provide listeners with a content note. Jake shares experiences of homophobia, suicide, substance use, and violence. We wanted to take a quick pause and encourage you to check in with yourself so that you can decide whether this is content you're able to engage with at this moment. Obviously, we've had your bio, but, you know, how did you get into this work of addressing misogyny within men's communities and talking as a man with other men? Because this is obviously something that not enough people are doing. The entry point wasn't really even about misogyny. It was about patriarchy. (laughs) This being an audio format, you can't tell, but I'm a six foot eight, straight, white, cisgendered male, like all the check boxes of privilege. And despite that, was struggling with depression in my late teens and early 20s. So, you know, playing life on easy mode and and still struggling. Out of that, my coping mechanism in my late teens was binge drinking and uh, fist bites. And at 22, it was self-harm. And that self-harm landed me in kind of a therapeutic practice to kind of begin healing and My partner at the time, kind of coming from a women's studies background, I really came to understand kind of the gendered experience, especially around masculinity and this script of you've got to be tough. You can't show emotion. You can't ask for help. And that really being the major barrier to my well-being. Right. As well, my co-founder, who's my best friend from university, unfortunately lost his 13-year-old brother to suicide in 2007. Mm. He was a young black man experiencing homophobic bullying. So we think that he might have been in the closet and hadn't come out yet. And that was the tragic end of his life. And my struggles and his younger brother's experience really wanted us to have something different for the next generation of men. And I think that 
so much of quote unquote male allies work kind of really begins from, oh, well, we should be doing this for others. Mm. And the risk in that is perpetuating kind of like a benevolent sexism, right? Yeah. But in kind of our approach of like how patriarchy harms men and boys, as well as women and girls and trans and non-binary individuals, we can move men from being stuck or a problem or apathetic or antagonistic to saying, hey, you have a stake in this as well, too, and really shifting them to be stakeholders, co-conspirators, co-beneficiaries, and then we're all anti-patriarchal together. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for that vulnerability that you're showing there and, and really kind of illustrating what we need to do. And I personally relate quite a bit to your story because I was assigned male at birth, although I came out as a trans person and a non-binary person very young. You know, I still was encoded with what are those things that men are supposed to do, that boys are supposed to do, and that real lack of almost dehumanizing men from themselves. Um, and as we know, suicide rates are significantly higher among men. Mind you, some of that is also due to the choices of how men engage in attempts in regards to committing suicide. But we do see these much higher rates. And so I really appreciate your kind of reframing that to how patriarchy also impacts them. And we see these impacting people at work. So why does doing this work for you make you feel like you belong and that there's a space for you? That thing that you said about um, dehumanizing men and boys in the culture, a quote that really, I think, signifies a lot of our approach to this work comes from the late Bell Hooks. I always am here for a Bell Hooks quote. And I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, the first act of violence that patriarchy asks of men is not that against women, but that against themselves. And should they fail to psychologically and emotionally cripple themselves, they'll be met by a group of men that will do it for them. Right. Exactly. And that kind of plays into what you were saying, some of those dire consequences. Women and trans and non-binary individuals attempt at much higher rates, but the twisted socialization is what's more emasculating than failing at taking your own life. Right. So we choose more lethal means. Right. 82% of drug poisonings are men. 85 plus percent on provincial and federal rates of incarceration are men. Homelessness, right? Like those are all the dire consequences that that plays out to. But from everyday average Joe to that, there's a whole host of like negative experiences that go around that. Absolutely. And to kind of bring that into the workplace with some of our programming, it's called equity leaders. And we want to focus on equity focused leadership. But a lot of that is in male dominant industries. And the entry point, again, isn't how do we serve specifically the underrepresented groups in these spaces, but also how do we serve the men who are occupying those male dominant spaces? Um, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Because I always say men treat other men like crap. Oh, yeah. Right. I was going to use a different word there, but we'll, we'll go with crap. But if we can't overcome that, how are we going to create inclusive environments and cultures that support belonging when the dominant group is constantly competing and dominating against itself? Definitely. Right. And so it's a way that we haven't really talked about or thought about. But when we approach that population that way, we're giving them a meaningful reason to take part. 
and not a zero-sum dialogue of, well, we looked at this number and there's too many men and we need more women and we're not going to create more jobs. So that means some people have to lose jobs, right? It, it becomes very zero-sum, very defensive, very antagonistic. But when we really come in with that culture of inclusion, that inevitably removes those barriers that underrepresented groups can see themselves there and thrive because the existing group supports one another to do that. Yeah, I've definitely seen some of these challenges when working with folks, especially in the skilled trades and a few other male-dominated fields. Mm. I'm going to throw it over to Aaron. Thanks, Jade. And you mentioned something earlier, Jake, around the script. And when we sort of make that connection to belonging, is it a true sense of belonging that men feel inside of the organizations? Are they comparing it to the script? Absolutely. So as you do this work around equity, diversity and inclusion, what have been some of the barriers for you? Your point about the scripts is so important. When men go off script, other men will use homophobic and misogynistic language to police their performance of that script. Exactly. That's really what I'm scratching at. But beyond that, if we take a step back of what the major barriers are, I think men are overvaluing what it is they stand to lose, you know, power and status, but they're undervaluing what it is they stand to gain. Absolutely. We call it return on involvement. And so deeper engagement with your children, with your partner, a deepening of relationships, a culture of inclusion where, you know, you don't have to constantly think about the competition and domination of like climbing that ladder and who's coming for that spot and those kinds of things. Exactly. Right. And so a lot of it is really helping those individuals navigate that equation and seeing what they stand to gain and getting them unstuck. You raise a really interesting point too. Like I have a son and a daughter and I can start to see how society impacts them, you know, gain the power, gain the title, have the big bank account, right? Like that's somehow been the big factor and determinant of success. But then I also think about the generational impacts that we also see. So, you know, for those men, what was the influence from their fathers, their grandfathers, you know, other men in their lives, boys in their lives, and from my perspective and the work that I do, I say it's one conversation at a time. I think it really is one conversation at a time. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it is that generational change. Like if we even just deconstruct the word patriarchy, it's potter and archine. Potter, father, archine, power, father, power. So what we inherit from our forefathers, literally by definition. And I think about what happened in my family. We're from the Czech Republic, formerly Czechoslovakia, and in that family dynamic, I had two grandfathers, and one was a very patriarchal father, very domineering, very kind of economic security, didn't have a lot of close relationships, et cetera, et cetera. But on my paternal side, my grandmother was actually fluent in seven languages. And in communist Czechoslovakia, you don't get a chance to travel. But because of her unique skill set, she was a technical secretary sent on diplomatic missions around the world which then left my dad's dad in charge of two sons. And many men didn't have caregiving roles. And my dad was six years older than his brother. And so he took on a little bit of that caregiving as well, too. So that chain of like father power was broken with my grandfather leaning into that. So my dad, you know, I think he really struggled with a lot of the, the stoic narratives, but he didn't have those like domineering patriarchal narratives. He was still a breadwinner, but he was a very involved father, very doting, those kinds of things. So 
it really just takes that one chain in that link to break and then change it for everyone after the fact. Totally. And the tough part is like my group has no role models, like a handful, a smattering, like I have my dad or whatever, but systemically we just don't have those role models. And so it's going to take some of that generational change. That's part of the reason why we work predominantly with 12 to 14 year old boys, because that's when they're kind of losing that innocence of boyhood and starting to act like what they think it is to be a man. And a lot of the narratives around what they think it is to be a man still have to do with power and, you know, just simple things like I'm going to be a pilot and I'm not going to be a stewardess. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to be a secretary. Those kinds of things. Those narratives still really exist, even though they're being smashed constantly. But when you're 12 years old and that's what you're socialized and then we, because we're progressive and concerned, say, well, you have a lot of power and you tell that to a 12 year old and says, I have no idea what you're talking about. My parents tell me what to do. My teacher tells me what to do. My coach tells me what to do. And so they start enacting power among their little friend group and they do it through differentiation, race, gender, sexuality. That's the low hanging fruit. Right. And that's why we see rises in rates of homophobia and misogyny and racism at that age group. Yeah. And so it's such a great time to come in and role model new ways of being a man in the world and really affirming their value as not tied to diminishing other people's values. I want to challenge the, I will say, old rhetoric of what it means to be a man. Do you think we'll ever get to a place about like, what does it mean to be human? I don't know if we'll ever get to it. However, the more role models we have of less gendered expression, less of the extremes, less pink and blue and more yellow, purple and green, it'll hopefully tamp down and will save some of the preconceptions that come with those expectations. That's a tough one, right? Totally. We have these sort of like scales of masculinity and scales of femininity. And how do we educate our children around that? Personally, systems, social justice, like that's kind of my entry point. Hmm. You know, there's lots of like, let's say men's groups or those kinds of things, which kind of like have a spiritualistic bent to it. And they talk about, you know, the divine feminine and the divine masculine. And we all have it within us and those kinds of things. And, you know, maybe it's an entry point into the conversation for some people. But I really push back against codifying anything as masculine or feminine because if it's available to all of us, but caregiving and nurturing are somehow still codified as feminine, men will never measure up as caregivers, right? Because we're still going to be, oh, you're babysitting your kids. No, we're not. We're being engaged fathers. Exactly. Right. And on the flip side of that, if leadership traits are still codified as masculine, women will never, you know, live up in workplaces. There will always be some way that they're falling short in that sense. Not to mention like, all we have to gain from trans and non-binary folks from like role modeling to us to shed like gendered norms and expectations, right? And give ourselves some peace within that. I love that. Me too. For anyone listening to this is one conversation at a time, one person at a time, whoever's in your sphere of influence. How are you having these conversations? How are you reimagining even the language that you're using? And yeah. the most infamous example that I think about is just how deeply coded the term guys is and how we just use that to encompass everyone. And it's the hardest one to take out of your vocabulary because it's been so normalized to be inclusive, even though by definition it's not. Agreed. Jake, any advice for engaging men, employees more broadly in this work? We are a pro-feminist organization. 
But feminism is a giant F word for many people. And it's more of a tripping hazard than it is an invitation into the conversation for them. And for men especially, it's often catastrophes like mental health crisis, suicide, substance abuse, these kinds of things that, whoa, like, what is this world? I have to look at it through this new lens. So it's very traumatic. Yeah. And in a lot of those frontline spaces, it's around male on male experience because a lot of men don't have good relationships with a lot of other men. And in healing some of that, then we hope to set up kind of a foundation for others. And that's tough because a lot of people experience that or view that as privileging a privileged population. And there can be some truth in that if we put resources and stuff towards it. But I don't know how we're going to make progress otherwise. And it's not a no but conversation. It's a yes and conversation because all of this work needs to occur at the same time. I appreciate all the different frames that you bring into perspective in this discussion. And we have three genders at the table right now. And as somebody who's more femme, I can tell you that every femme and every woman I know has still been that sounding board for men in ways that I don't think they're being for each other. So we see this engagement of women and femme folks trying to do the healing work that we can't do fully for men. Men have to do that work with themselves. And so do you see us getting to a place where we'll actually be able to get rid of patriarchy or kind of change the norms for men? I'm obviously an optimist because I'm doing this work, but I'm also a realist in the sense that Rome wasn't built in a day and it won't be dismantled in a day, right? And so I see it as incremental and generational. And, you know, we also have to set our expectations up in order to be successful. Well, I think that is a great point to end our main questions, but we'll be back in one second with the rapid fire. Welcome back. First question, if you could recommend one book, what would it be? Going back to the quote that I shared earlier from Bell Hooks would be her book, Will to Change on Men, Masculinity and Love. To me, it's the best feminist book about men and really opened up my eyes and clicked a lot of things for me. Awesome. Next question. What brings you joy no matter what? I'm a foodie, you know, life's too short for food. You know, I keep a food map in different cities and restaurants to visit and stuff like that. I love that. What's your theme song for today? Moment of Truth by Gangstar. I appreciate the for today qualifier because it changes constantly. I love that. Next question. Who is someone that inspires you and how they create belonging, but don't necessarily receive enough credit? I'm just so inspired by Next Gen Men's Youth Program Manager, Jonathan Reed. Day to day, I know more and more my job is to set him up for success. And what's one call to action you'd like from our listeners? Just talk to a boy or a man in your life and ask them what masculinity means to them, where they pick that up, what they like about it, and what they wish was different. I think that's great. It's a good, tangible piece of homework for everybody. Thank you so much, Jake. Thank you, Jake. My goodness, Aaron, that was such a great and important discussion. I'm so glad that you invited Jake. Me too. Jake's work is so important in this space. Yeah. 
I loved that language that Jake brought in around masculinity and how there truly is this script from such a young age. Yeah, I think that's all so very, very true. And so much of DEI has become focused on equity-deserving groups, understandably. But by only doing that, we end up leaving out the people that we could be bringing along. Absolutely. There is a piece of like reality of where we're at right now. I think about the boardroom table. We have a lot of men sitting at them. Right. If they are brought into the conversation, if they can be the allies in those spaces because they currently occupy those spaces, then I think we can accelerate progress faster. Yeah, that belonging is something we'll never reach unless everybody is engaged. And the fact that there are so many men who also feel like they don't belong, I think speaks to those people that we could reach, that could be engaged. I think that is a great way for us to end. And so I think the last thing that I'll leave our listeners with is just that this isn't one big grand change that you have to make. It can be incremental and it's one conversation at a time. I love that. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed, learned and uncovered deeper belonging with us. We would also like to thank and share a brief message from our sponsors, Pride at Work Canada. Through dialogue, education, thought leadership, Pride at Work Canada empowers employers to build workplaces that celebrate all employees, regardless of gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation. If you're interested in learning more about creating workplaces where 2S LGBTQIA people can feel like they belong, please check out our e-learning courses at education.prideatwork.ca. Many thanks to our production team, editor and producer, Sean Ahmed, communications, Louise Augusto Nobre, and production support, Connor Pion. And of course, most of all, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this important discussion. Connect with us on LinkedIn and let us know what part of today's episode resonated most with you. For more information about today's guest, links reference, and a transcript, check out our show notes, which are available on Pride at Work Canada's website. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us to uncover belonging. <laughs>